there. This is Hank Shaw with the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. I am so glad you have joined me for another episode. And this episode is special. It's special for a couple of reasons, not only because it's the first three-way podcast I have ever done, so we have two guests today, but it's also special because this may very well be the only episode of the entire season where the subject is something that I have not directly hunted. Now, it's not entirely true to say I've never directly hunted rail birds, which is what we're going to be talking about today, but it is correct to say that I have never actually successfully hunted rail birds. I've tried it in Texas, and I've tried it in a few other places, and I have hunted their cousins, the coots, the moorhens, and the gallinules, including the wily pukiko, all the way out in New Zealand. But as far as the four huntable rails, the Sora, the Virginia, the Clapper, and the King Rail, it's all a mystery to me, which is why I wanted to have two different people on the podcast today. Not only do we have Ariel Fournier, who is a rail expert and a biologist at the University of Illinois, but we also have Dave DiBenedetto, who some of you may know is the editor of Gardening Gun Magazine, which is one of my favorite magazines. I always read it whenever I see it. Dave is also a really good rail hunter in the South Carolina low country where rail hunting is actually a thing. So between the two, I figure we can get a really good grounding on these crazy birds. Now, a lot of you, myself included, are like, rails, I know you can hunt them. I see them in the regulations, but where are they and where do you go and what? how do you identify them and not shoot the wrong bird and do they taste good and are they worth my effort and all of this stuff is stuff that we're going to go into at length in the next hour i hope this episode lights a fire under everybody to try and seek out those crazy rails that are probably living in a marsh near you welcome 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 ariel and dave this is uh this is my first ever three-way uh podcast via Skype. Uh, and Ariel Fournier, you are calling me from uh, the University of Illinois, right? Correct. And Dave DiBenedetto, you are calling me from the great city of Charleston, South Carolina, right? That is also correct. Awesome. So today's topic is an unusual one for me because this is, may I think in fact it is, the only episode of this season of the podcast where I have not actually hunted the animal that we're about to talk about, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get two of you onto the show today, because you guys have different areas of expertise. So, Ariel, you're a, a rail biologist, among other things. Yep. And Dave, you are a hunter and an eater of rails, and you also live in uh, an area where rail hunting is actually a thing where in the rest of the country, rail hunting is kind of this, it's almost as bad as snipe hunting, um, where you're like, really? Do these birds actually exist? And yes, they do. Right. So we're going to take as much time as we need to demystify the mysterious rail birds. So, so let's start with Ariel. Tell me a little bit about AY rails. Where, what's your area of expertise? And, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Um, so I got hooked on rails in high school. Um, I was very outdoors oriented and very interested in birds more generally um, and got involved with an organization called Black Swamp Bird Observatory in Ohio, who at the time was running a rail project. So they were trapping rails to ban them for scientific research during spring migration. And so I got to go out and help with that. And that's where I really fell in love with wetlands and trying to understand wetland management and bird migration 
And then I went on to, throughout my, edu- my higher education and ended up doing my PhD studying um, the autumn migration of rails in Missouri and trying to better understand how we can manage public wetlands for waterfowl and also provide habitat for migrating rails, um, focusing mostly on Sora, but also some on Virginia rail and yellow rail. So, it was yellow rail, one of the huntable rails in the United States? It no longer is. It used to be, but not anymore. Gotcha. So Dave, how did you get started on the whole rail train? It was a Boykin Spaniel. So I, I, um, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and I was um, a river rat through and through. But I, um, my family wasn't much. Uh, they weren't big hunters, much hunters at all. So uh, I think I knew about rail hunting, but uh, until I uh, came back, to the low country in 2008 to work at garden and gun when i did i got a boykin spaniel and at that point i was looking for any way i could get out and hunt more with her and uh you know the boykin spaniel's tagline is the dog that doesn't rock the boat which is which is kind of perfect for rail hunting because you want uh, a small craft you're either pushing it or, or rowing it um pushing with a pole and uh it was it was the dog i i i met a fellow Boykin older, owner who said, you know, come join me. And I, I went once and I, I fell in love immediately. Isn't it the law that every hunter in the South must own a Boykin? <laughs> well, I can tell you that I, um, my Boykin is 11 and now I have a, I have a two year old lab. Um, so well, you know, I'll let you defer from that. <laughs> infer infer from that i can tell you that I, I i don't know i can't count even on two hands the number of people i know who do not live in the south who run with boykins <laughs> you know there's pride in place and the, and the boykin is a, is the southern breed but you know what what i yeah, i know this isn't about boykins but that idea that you could have a pocket retriever right a 40 a 35 pound dog that could do essentially everything a lab could do uh except handle the real cold stuff um and I, I bought in big time. And, and thankfully, because of that, I'm a rail hunter. Cool. Well, we're going to get into dogs a little bit later. Let's start with habitat. So, you know what? Let's, let's not start with habitat. Let's start with the birds themselves. So, it, it's as easy as, well, what is a rail? And this is an Oriel question. Sure. Um, so, you can answer that question a couple different ways. I usually answer it pretty broadly which is that they're members of the family Rallidae, which is a, a taxonomic group of birds. So that includes the gallinules and the coots and the true rails, birds that have rail in their name. The, the problem with sticking with just the, the true rails is that they're not all taxonomically similar. Like black rail, Virginia rail, and clapper rail um, are not all that closely related when you compare them to things like Sora um, and king rail and stuff like that. So Anyway, not to go down too much of a taxonomy, taxonomy rabbit hole, but broadly speaking, it's anything in Rallidae. So they're, they're webless birds. Um, they're often called chicken-like, and, and many of them certainly fall into that category. Most of them are very cryptically colored, with, of course, exceptions like purple gallinule. Um, Those are so they're, cool. They're, yeah, they're beautiful cute. birds. Um, Rallidae are globally distributed, so they're found on six continents. The only one they're not on is Antarctica. Um, and they're also found on many islands around the world. So they're a, a family of birds that has over and over again evolved to be flightless when they encounter habitats where there aren't any mammalian predators. And so there's a lot of different individual rail species on islands like in the South Atlantic and all over the South Pacific. 
Um, and, and so it's just a really interesting group of birds from kind of a biological perspective as well. Wasn't there this trippy rail on some island, maybe in the Indian Ocean, that evolved twice? Yeah, that's uh, information has been coming out over kind of the past year. So, yeah, there was a species that they found in the fossil record, and then it was wiped out. I'm not going to remember exactly why, by some kind of natural disaster. And then a species that is incredibly similar has evolved on that island again. Um, wow, so yeah. cool. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're very good at adapting to their local environment, which is pretty cool. I love the whole uh, scientific word of cryptic. Which basically means, yeah, they're camoed. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, yeah. And and it's it's a behavioral thing as well, right? I mean, with the exception of things like coots and some of the gallinules that will spend time out in the open, most rails don't like to be seen or sometimes heard. So, yeah. Do do, um, do most rails have that same call that the clapper rail does, which is that? Um, many of the North American rails have some kind of variation on that. Yeah. Got it. Um, okay. Like the Sora has their Vinny. Um, the Virginia Rail has a similar call as well. But yeah. Right. I'm gonna yeah. put uh, I'm gonna put sound files to all the different rails, and everybody who is going to listen to this podcast who spends any time duck hunting is gonna be like, oh my god, they're everywhere. I've just never seen them because you hear them all morning long when you're hunting ducks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, absolutely. That was one of my favorite things. So I did my PhD research on a bunch of state and public and federal land in Missouri, and I would run into duck hunters a lot. And they'd be like, oh, you guys don't need to go out and survey. There aren't any rails out here. And I was like, slam your car door. And they would slam <laughs> it. And I'd be like, those, that's all the rails. Like, you might not have seen them, but they're definitely out here. They're so. super stealthy. Hey, here's a question. Do the, the, what do you, are the male, is it like a rooster and a hen or a cock and a hen or a drake and a hen? What's the nomenclature? Uh, that's actually a really good question. Um, I usually just call them male and female. I don't know if there is a general nomenclature for it. I've certainly never heard or, or, or heard of one or used one, and, and nor do I know that I could. I, I've seen a difference. Uh, That's unless, another yeah, question. Is there dimorphism? Um, so for things like clapper rail, there isn't any plumage dimorphism. Um, on soras, you will like the sora. The males get that really big black neck and, and face. Um, and there is some um, dimorphism in plumage on yellow rails, but for many of the others, there isn't. Um, but purple gallinule would be another example where there is some strong sexual dimorphism. So they're related to pukikos in New Zealand, aren't they? Yes. I have had actually I have had the privilege of hunting pukikos, and oh, I went cool. on national television in New Zealand, which is kind of like being world famous in Poland, uh, <laughs> just to cook pukikos. Uh, they the, the TV station was like, you can't eat pukikos. I'm like, well, why are you, can you hunt them then? I mean, of course they're going to be, they're, they're like, they're not going to be delicious. I'm like, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> they were amazing. They're just, they, I mean, just like a, like a, a coot here in this country. Um, they've got these big old legs with just mega sinews. And sure. when you get into the cooking, that's the biggest issue with cooking these birds. And, and I'll only be able to speak from the perspective of, of cooking the other, the, the non-rail named gallinules. Um, but they were just perfectly fine and they're huge. And by the way, they talk exactly like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah. The Pukikos are one of the bigger members of Rowladay. So that's, yeah, they're anyway, there's a lot guys, of, a lot of dimorphism. Um, do you guys know anything about the history of hunting rails in this country? I, um, what I know, um, comes from reading a little bit of Audubon. 
and uh, when he was doing his travels, he, he came through Charleston, actually. And he describes uh, a good bit of what it was like back then. And it, again, it's not that very different um, uh, than it is now, besides the fact that there were no limits and probably a lot more a lot more uh, rails out there because it sounds like they, you know, piled them as high as they could. So, again, not much has changed uh, when you're rail hunting now as opposed to rail hunting then. Hey, I'd like to take a moment to say that Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts, hats, and other gear. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to check out the new line of Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. I'm fascinated by the concept of it, though, because so so Dave, d- just walk me through a typical East Coast rail hunt. What does it look like for people who may not know? Yeah, well, the first thing you got to know is um, it's all tide dependent, right? And as we've as as um, Ariel has said here, the, these birds don't want to be seen. So you need to hunt on a full moon tide or a new moon tide, what, what we call spring tides. But those are the highest tides um, of the fall. And those usually happen a couple of days every month. And, and while rail season, say, is open for the entire month of November, you're not going to go hunting unless you've got that full or new moon. And even better if there's a northeast wind blowing more water uh, into the marsh. Because what that does is it, it causes the Spartina grass, they, they can no longer hide in that green Spartina grass, which is about two and a half or three feet high. And they then uh, they gather in the little patches of grass that are still standing, and that's often are, are still exposed. And that, that can be on the edges of creeks, which are a little higher, like little tidal creeks, or we call them feeder creeks off the main river, or they may be on a, a, you know, a rack we call marsh rack, which is some old grass that's matted up. Um, so it's really all about the tides and if you've got the right tide, then you just need a, you know, a boat. Um, and in many cases, you, you know, I, 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 I'm an old school rail hunter. I use a John boat. So I, I get on the oars or convince someone else to get on the oars and row and you, I'll, I'll row down a, just a tiny tidal Creek, not much wider than the boat, you know, and you often want to go with that last bit of the incoming tide, um, and you'll, as you approach some of these areas of grass that are still exposed, you'll flush them. And, and you know, even then, they don't want to, uh, a lot of times they don't want to flush. So uh, you, you, can, you can get surprisingly close, which um, can also make you feel like a fool when you try to shoot and you, you know, you totally whiff. But, uh, you know, that is it's usually two, man, two guys, you know, two hunters in a boat and a dog. I mean, that's got to be one of the re- real reasons why it's it's a it's kind of a limited entry thing, at least in the east. And and we'll talk about rails because they they're on, all over the country, but in the east, it's always this boat thing, and it's just, yeah, there's yeah. sort of an air of mystery behind it. Yeah, you know, and um, there's this there's I don't know if you'd call it a myth because I've tried to cook them, and we'll get into cooking, but they aren't necessarily 
most I don't know that many people have discovered the right way to cook them. Um, so there's that, right? There's this myth that, but but it's uh, but they can be, you know, I've eaten plenty, and and so I, I'm glad that that myth persists because I certainly don't want to see a crowded marsh. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things about rail hunting is you're out there in the fall um, on that high tide. The, the spartina grass has gone from green to kind of its autumn winter color. And, uh, you know, you're just floating along in this true wilderness, really. It feels like you're on a savanna, um, it, usually behind barrier islands. And, you know, so you're a little protected from that wind. Uh, it, it's, it's truly one of my favorite things to do. So, Ariel, uh, let's get into, like, the four main rails. I think there's only four that you can hunt in the country. And there's lots and lots of things that are called rails. So, as far as I know... There's only the the King, the Clapper, the Sora, and the Virginia are the four that have hunting seasons somewhere in the United States. Is that right? Uh, yes. I mean, you can you can also hunt American fruits various places, and they're they're in Raleigh as well. But yeah, for the true rails, that would be the four. Yep. So imagine you are on the boat with Dave. How in the world are you going to identify these these birds and not shoot the wrong bird? Um, yeah, I think some of that comes down to practice and to it's it has a lot less to do um, with the specific kind of colors that you see and more to kind of do with how the bird moves in a lot of instances. Um, so with, with clapper rails, it's a little bit easier because they're so much larger than Soros and Virginia's that if you spend a little bit of time out in the marsh, you'll pretty quickly be able to tell the difference because, I mean, they're like an order of magnitude bigger. Mm-hmm. Um for the work that, that I've done for my research, we're going out at night and trying to count them. And so a lot of it has to do with looking at leg color and looking at the bird's body position as they fly. So like um, when rails just kind of pick up and fly short distances, they fly with their legs down. Yeah, and that's, so you that's can, right. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks really funny. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, a lot of the managers I work with don't believe that the birds migrate because it doesn't look like they can fly very far. Um, but so they, they fly with their legs down for short distances. And so you can get at those different leg colors. Um, and with a little bit of experience, you can also see that Virginia rails frequently hold their wings pretty differently than Soras do. Um, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing, I mean, depending on where you are in the country, like if you're where I am in the middle part of the country, the main thing to look out for is going to be yellow rails. And in that case, you don't want to shoot something that has a bright white wing patch and it's very distinctive. Gotcha. Um, it's like with snipe with a, and when you flush a snipe and it's got a white butt, that's a dowager. Don't kill it. Right. Right. So I think it's just spending time out there, you know, before, before you're going hunting and making sure that you're comfortable with, with IDs. Um, but yeah, it, it just comes with some experience. Are there habitat differences between the two? Like, oh, this is only going to have sorrows or this is only going to have Virginias or whatever. Um, to, to certain extents, more so during the breeding season than you would encounter during the hunting season. Um, Virginia rails will tend to be in places that are a little bit wetter and they'll tend to be in habitat that has more vertical structure. So they would be in something with more cattails and bulrush versus something that's more millet and smartweed dominated. But there's certainly a lot of overlap. You'll find them in the same places. Interesting. So uh, as a California duck hunter, the only rail that I ever encounter with any frequency are Soras. And there's absolute megasauras in some of the places that i hunt but we don't actually have a rail season on the west and i don't know if you have any idea why that might be 
Um, I honestly didn't realize that, so I'm not sure why. I mean, in, in most eastern states and in several of the Canadian provinces, there's a Sora season and a Virginia season. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what that's a relic of. Um, it could be a case of, like, for example, we don't have a sandhill crane season because we've got the two different kinds, the lessers and the graders, and uh, the Pacific flyway population of uh, – I'm, I'm going to get this wrong, but one of them. One of them is not so great, so that we, and you really can only tell them in hand. So it could be a deal where one of the one of the typical rails that out here on the West Coast isn't very common, so that there's not really a huntable population of them because of habitat loss. That would be I'm just guessing, but that would be my guess. It, yeah, it may have to do. There's some different subspecies of Virginia rail, and one of them is out on the West Coast, and so maybe it's because of that the status of that subspecies or something too. So talk to me about. If, if a guy in Missouri or Illinois or Ohio or in the middle of the country, and, and there's a, uh, a guy I've been in correspondence with who hunts them quite avidly in eastern Oklahoma. Um, so that's going to be a very different looking pursuit than boating in the, on the East Coast Marsh. Certainly, yeah. Um, so the folks that I've interacted with, yeah, describe a very different experience than what Dave was saying. So they're going out and walking through um, – you know, in, in Missouri and in, in, I'm sure in eastern Oklahoma, these kind of moist soil, smartweed millet, very emergent marsh situations. Many of them are working with dogs. Some folks don't go. And they're covering large amounts of ground on foot. And they're, they're flushing birds up that way. Um, so my, my doctoral advisor, David Kremitz, was an avid rail hunter. It is an avid rail hunter. And he would say you'd get about a bird a mile. So mm. it's, um, it's a pretty active method of hunting. But yeah, they're and they're the folks I've talked to have kind of mirrored the same experiences I've had in going out and trying to count them, which is you want to look for these kind of habitat edges. So they don't like to be out in the open, but they often like to take advantage of places where there's high amount of food resources. And a lot of times that's at habitat transitions. So either a transition between vegetation and water or between different kinds of vegetation is where we'll frequently find them in higher densities. So you're not necessarily walking like a straight line. You might be kind of following a habitat transition. That's interesting. So Dave and I both we had a we both had a, an invisible light bulb go up above mm -hmm. our head because every more or less every thing that human beings hunt or fish live on the edge of something. They love an edge. Sure. <laughs> That's right. Like really everything. Like deer yep. are edge creatures. Grouse yep. are edge creatures. Fish are edge creatures. It's it's kind of fascinating how that works out. So habitat is one thing. Uh, you mentioned it just briefly a second ago, diet. What do rails eat? Um, so during the spring and the breeding season, they're primarily eating invertebrates. Um, we don't necessarily have a great understanding at any more precision than that for some of the species. But we know, for instance, that yellow rails eat almost primarily snails during the breeding season. Um, but then during the fall, they're switching over to seeds. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's why it's not surprising to find them in these big stands of smartweed and millet and other really heavy seed producing plants in the fall. Um, they're in there. They can gain really ridiculous amounts of weight during migratory stopovers. We would catch some individuals that were so fat that they were unable to fly. Oh, um, and, so and, so, good. and so they, <laughs> yeah, given given the opportunity, they can really pack on the weight. Do they do the steatosis thing with their livers? Do they they self foie gras their livers? Um, I am not sure. 
I guess you'd have uh, to open one up. <laughs> yeah, which there, there are folks who have done some of the dietary work, but that's that's not the kind of work that I've done. But it's possible. Because yeah. from a cook's perspective, um, where I interact a lot with science and biology is I am a great reader of anything that I I go through. This is a tip for anybody out there. It's is if you really want to geek out on a game animal that you're pursuing, find its Latin name, go to Google Scholar, type hmm. that Latin name in quotes, and then type this phrase in also in quotes, food habits. So you <laughs> you combine those two, and then it'll spit out all of the actual science that's been done on the food habits of X or Y creature. And in the case of something like a rail, since it lives all over the country, you'll see somebody somewhere may have done a food habit study about rails or ducks or grouse or whatever, whatever in your region. And that gives you a very good indication of not only what they're, what they eat, but as a, as a guy who's done this for God, almost 20 years, the things that the animal that you pursue eats, if they are also edible, go well with that thing in the dish that you create. So in other words, the seeds that – so you know, one thing that we have here in California is we're the number two producer of rice. So you're never going to go wrong doing duck fat fried rice you know, with, with our California ducks. And very often you'll find that, especially in the fall when a lot of our game birds are chasing seed seeds – I mean – Virtually every bird in the spring eats bugs or something like that because they need the protein for the eggs and that, that sort of thing. And then in the fall, a lot of them switch to fruit and nuts and seeds, which human beings in general, we like things that eat that because it, it creates flavors that, we're, that we like. And it's interesting to hear about the rails that, that they're – another kind of side note is there's two ducks that are very similar superficially. The bufflehead and the ruddy duck so they're both very little diver ducks that are considered trash ducks by a lot of people but ruddy ducks their food habits are 80 percent uh, seeds and, and uh, seeds and uh, uh, vegetation the bufflehead is 80 percent inverts okay and so they might look similar and they might act similar but they do not taste similar and and this is a really good window into whether something is going to taste good or not and since I bring all this up because rails are kind of a mystery to a lot of us. And if we know what they eat, it's a good indicator of really even a simple question is, do you pluck and do you pluck it or do you skin it? Yeah. So um, very interesting. Um, RLD, it's my understanding that the clapper rails eat a lot of fiddler crabs. Is that, uh, is that interesting? Yeah, they, yeah, they definitely do. Yeah. Fiddler crabs. There's been some really interesting work down on the Gulf Coast about how clapper rail um, reproductive success is tied really closely with fiddler rail pop, or fiddly crab population size. Wow. So, yeah, so, it's a it's a really big part of their diet. So, Hank, you're going to have to serve a side of fiddler crabs when you cook your uh, Virginia. Well, I mean, your clapper rails. That sounds like I mean, it's it's, it's not as bad as merganser's. Um, <laughs> you're right. But that suggests that. Number one, my first thought is skin that sucker. Yes, um, yes. Number two is like if you didn't skin it, you might want to go with like a paella and just go with what nature gave you and, and put either crab meat and or shrimp in the same dish. Right, right. King rails eat a lot of um, crayfish or crawfish or however you choose to pronounce that. Um, so they're also very kind of crustacean focused. They just choose the freshwater variety. Interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's great it could fish, make them... fish on the side would be good. That would. <laughs> oh, I I got the dish, and in fact I in fact I I created this dish, not fully knowing that what I just knew what you guys just told me, but in my latest cookbook Pheasant Quail Cottontail, I actually have a recipe for rail perlu. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That has shrimp in it. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, I was just I actually made it with snipe because they didn't have any rails, but uh, it worked just fine. Yeah, I mean, and the rails that are moving through the part of the country that I'm in, most of them are going down to the Gulf Coast in winter where they're spending a lot of time in rice. Um, so there's actually a, a rice, um, yellow rail and rice festival in Louisiana every fall because the yellow rails use the rice fields. And so they've got it set up so that primarily bird watchers can come in and ride on the combines while the farmers are harvesting the rice and see the birds because they're flushed out of the fields as the rice is harvested. So, Interesting. And king rails spend a lot of time in agricultural rice fields as well. So. What about soras? I assume that they do. I don't know if anyone specifically looked at it, but I'd be really surprised if they didn't. So. They seem awful small to eat uh, inverts, unless they're eating very, very small inverts. Right. Yeah. Over the winter, I'm I'm sure they're primarily, you know, grain and seed based. So. I was doing some research for <laughs> the for this podcast, and I think I read a story where you you're featured in it. Ariel, looking for black rails. Yep. Um, like, yeah. It's like the bird that apparently doesn't exist, except it does. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, they're, they're very, very elusive. Um, so it's the smallest rail that we have in North America. It's among the smallest of rails globally. And, um, yeah, they're, the eastern population is being considered for listing under the Endangered Species Act. So they're, they're not overly abundant, um, and they're extra elusive. Like, if you think it's difficult to get your eyes on a Sora or a Clapper rail, you should try trying to find a bird that's black and roughly the size of a sparrow that basically refuses to fly. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm, um, I'm really fortunate to get to work with a great group of folks down in the Gulf of Mexico on trying to better understand how to use um, prescribed fire to manage their habitat. So The guys it's, at Quail Forever do that, too. Yeah, yeah. Prescribed fire is a fantastic tool for managing a variety of habitats. Definitely. It's interesting this trait that they share of, of not wanting to fly, um, which is what you know one of the things when you're when you're hunting them uh, here. Um, and I mentioned sometimes you can get real close. I mean, the, the old timers sometimes carry a bucket of oyster shells to toss in the general direction and, and uh, one or two and, and get them going. But uh, they they certainly like to stay tucked tucked in, and it's shocking how uh, you could have maybe eight or nine strands of Spartina grass and a, you know, a decent sized Virginia rail or what we call March hen will be in there and you don't see it. You don't know it until either it, you know, pops up after you've gone by or, you know, the dog jumps off the boat because he can't take it anymore and he knows it's there. (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're really good at hiding in vegetation and Sora and Virginia rail are also really adept swimmers and divers. Yes. Um, Right. And so they'll, They'll swim with like just their head above the water or sit with just their head above the water. And they'll also dive and grab onto vegetation and sit under the water and wait for, well, they think we're predator. I guess, you know, you're hunting, you are a predator. So they're waiting, they're waiting for the predator to leave. Um, And so, yeah, they're, they're very good at using their environment to, to stay safe. Yeah. The the clapper rail does that swim where its head kind of bobs, you know, forward as it, as it moves, which I think a lot of them do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like, it's very cute. Like yep. very cute. Like yep. 
So that's an interesting side note to all of this is that, yes, coots, moorhens, and purple gallinules are all, they're all basically rails. Yep. Are they also in the, are they, are they in the order galliforms? Are they, are they actually water chickens or are they something different? Um, they're in the order gruiforms. Okay. So they're not, yeah. they're not actual chicken birds. They're not actual chicken birds. They just okay. look like chicken birds. Yeah. Cause it makes sense because, you know, to my knowledge, every, every rail is a red meat bird, right? Yeah. Because they all yeah. migrate. Yes, they do. They they might not look like they can fly very well, but they, they take off. And the little bit of work that's been done tracking them during migration suggests that they can go a couple hundred miles in a night. So when they get up and move, they can really go. Well, in coots, I believe, you might, you would probably know better than I do, I think coots are the highest flying migrators of all waterfowl. Um, I have not heard that particular statistic, but yeah, that's... I mean, highest you're talking altitude altitude yeah so yeah. once they get up they get yeah. up huh that's and really cool it, did the virginia the virginia um or i'm sorry the clapper rail they are they a nighttime migrator yeah to the, to the best of our knowledge all rails are nocturnal migrants yeah, yeah. okay yeah i knew so i actually taught myself how to so-called duck hunt by stalking and assassinating moorhens and coots <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. i started i started as an adult and nobody really told me how to hunt ducks and so i just would would go to public refuges and i knew that more hands and coots were legal game and nobody else seemed to be hunting them so i took it upon myself to see if i could actually hit things with them and i wish there had been drone footage of me sneaking up in the <laughs> levees uh, you know, like Elmer Fudd, you know, with his huge draft of coots, like, the burr, burr, burr. And like surprise, motherfucker! <laughs> I, I, I once killed, I once killed nine with one shell. Wow! And uh, so the first time I ever did it, I I brought back, uh, a, you know, I don't know, maybe four or five, of them. and they look so they look like chickens, so I plucked them, and they had beautiful white fat. They looked great, so I popped them in the oven to roast, and oh my god, it was like this, it smelled like low tide on a hot day. Yeah. It was uh, not fishy yeah. at all. It was pondy. Yeah. Like just yeah. pond, like the algae at the bottom like of muddy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a real reflection of where they are in the food chain. So yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean they're they're actually uh, as. For the duck hunters out there, they are the best confidence decoys because coots are super wary. Right. And if you are hunting in a patch of cattails or whatever, and you have a uh, and you have a bunch of coot decoys around you, then all the other birds are like, oh, well, there must there can't be a, a hairless ape with a gun in that particular set of tulies. <laughs> so let's go there. Yeah. Uh. But, you know, um, the, the, there's a sculptor down here uh, in South Carolina, Granger McCoy, who does amazing, amazing work. Um, and he's uh, he's probably in his 70s now, but grew up in the low country. And, and uh, we did a talk together once and he, he has done some beautiful rail uh, carvings, just just tremendous. Uh, anyway, I asked him about rail hunting and he said, you know, the best way to hunt rails is to go out with a 410. And he said, and you put one shell in your pocket. And when the rail pops up, you take the shell out of your pocket and you shoot. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you're a better shot than me, but I get it. 
Is that because they they flush so close? Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's funny. I tell all my friends who are just starting to hunt, and I I try to mentor a lot of new hunters. Um, so a lot of their their first hunts are at these, you know, what I, we call it a pet and shoot, the you know the preserve hunting. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I always tell them that when that fat pen raised pheasant gets up at your feet, right. <laughs> you should say to yourself, "Look at the pretty bird. Raise right. your gun and then shoot." <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely right. I just but, I didn't yeah, know that they flushed so so close. I like the I like the tip on feet down because I actually tried to hunt them in Angleton, Texas this this past September, and I know I saw a bunch of them because I know I saw a bunch of feet down, not coot, funny looking bird things. But I I I not being John James Audubon, I didn't want to ground check them by just like shoot, shoot that, find out what it is because <laughs> that's no bueno. Uh, yeah. So. It took me a while to figure out that that feet down was definitely a rail. Yep. Yeah, that's a strong, strong signal of a rail. And yeah, Soras have more of a yellowy green leg to them, and Virginia rails have got a little bit more orange. Um, and they're both a little bit smaller than a robin to kind of give folks a reference point if if you are well associated with American robins. So they are small then. Yes. So that's, so yeah. Yeah, clapper rails are quite a bit bigger. Yeah, that means they're like they're like yeah. a dove. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then king rails must be quite big then. Yeah, kings and clappers are very, very similar in size. Um, you're you're looking at somewhere around like 400 grams for like a king rail or a clapper rail, whereas most Soras and Virginias are going to be under 100 grams. Wow. Um, I, I've so, caught a couple of Virginias that are over that, but they were like obesely fat. I'm sure <laughs> at, a, at a more normal weight, they were under 100 uh, be, uh, speaking of weirdly, unusually, obesely, morbidly obese birds of Walmart kind of thing, um, I had the opportunity to hunt chachalacas just the oh, other cool. day. Oh, huh. cool. And so uh, if you're not familiar with the chachalaca, not only is it the coolest bird to say in North America, um, <laughs> it's it's legit a chicken. It's totally a chicken. Sure. So they're crassidae, so they're basically they're, they're chicken cousins, but most of the so-called chicken cousins that I, uh, that I encounter are really grousey. This is not grousey. It is chickeny. It is, it has yellow skin and it, I don't know how it got so fat, but they are, they were morbidly obese birds. It was amazing. It's it just sounds tasty. They are amazing. I'm, uh, I'm actually going to have, I'm going to post the recipes for them very soon. Mm. Um, and of course the story I'm writing about the hunt itself is kind of named itself. It's gotta be boom chachalaka. Yeah, right. But of course. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> Give me a story there, Dave. Tell me tell me about a, a cool rail hunt that keeps you going out there after it. You know, I got to say, what I found so great about rail hunting, which I mentioned, one of the things I mentioned earlier was how beautiful this area of the country is that time of year on that high tide. Um the great color. You're the only one out there. Sometimes on these in, on these rising tides, you can fish redfish in the marsh before it gets too high. So you're cat you're casting, and then you're moving to the blast afterwards. But I, you know, I'll be honest. My Boykin was um, she was tough. And when you got her in a duck blind or on a dove field, if you were shooting and nothing was falling, or other people were shooting uh, and you weren't. She couldn't control herself, and I couldn't control her. <laughs> and she would, she would either eat the duck blind or, or dig a hole uh, as big as a, you know, you could be, you could bury a man in it. 
um, in a dove field. And I got, we got out onto the, uh, the marsh and for one, it was a, a little, it's less pressure. Immediately it's, it's less pressure. There, there are a lot of birds, you know, there are not a lot of people around at all. Um, and, uh, I just remember early on hitting a few and they would drop, you know, a ways in the, in the Spartina grass. And I would think to myself, oh man, I, you know, I wonder if she's going to get this. And she, she was made for it. She, you know, has a great nose and, and, uh, I think they have a definitive scent. Um, and just watching her work in that low country marsh, I, I was as proud as you could be and as happy as you could be. Uh, and also I'm not a great shot, so, uh, I don't have any problem with the fact that they don't get up like a quail. So for me, it was, it, it really was that, and it, that this is the thing I can do with my dog. And, you know, that is special to me. That, that's what keeps me, you know, I love hunting, but I really love hunting with a dog. So for us, it was Martian. That's good. I makes me want to go out there and do it. And I, I to my knowledge, there are no, maybe, you know, there, there, you can't just go rail hunting, can't like with a guide or anything. Is there, it's all it, just, you can. You, so some of these, uh, flats fishing guys, uh, they can, they'll use a flats boat and, and, uh, you know, in Charleston, there are probably, I mean, there are a lot of light tackle guides, but there are probably two or three that you could line up a, a hunt with. I know similar up uh, in the Myrtle Beach area and probably same in Savannah. Um, people are catching on. And, and the thing is, once, you, once you've done it, you, you, you really you get it, uh, how, how cool it is. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Are we talking September, October or we're talking, it's a, it's a split. It, it comes in here in South Carolina. It comes in for about a week in October and then it comes in mid November to I think late December. Uh, but again, you, you only have four, you know, maybe four to six days a month where you can actually do it because if the tide's not, you know, let's just say a normal tide is a uh, five feet, eight, you know, five foot, eight inches from, from the low water mark. If you were out there on that, there's still about eight inches of Spartina grass exposed and you'll never get them to flush in that. You, you know, you'll, you, you just can't, I've tried, trust me, I've tried it and there, there, there's just no way. Um, and they'll just disappear into it. So, um, you, you, you just need those tides. And like you said, that is a limiting factor. I mean, it's not, it's a long season, but in reality, there's only a few days that that work. So they don't migrate. I think they I think we have some birds and Ariel, correct me if I'm wrong. I think we have some full time resident birds and we also get some migrants uh, during a cold winter. Is that true? That is. Yeah, that is correct. So the clapper rails that are farther north on the East Coast, um, I think from probably roughly Delaware farther north, those are somewhat migratory depending on winter severity. Um, but our current understanding is that the birds on the lower part of the Atlantic coast that breed there stay there year round. So I do know there is a, uh, a very venerable, like centuries old, uh, New Jersey Sora rail hunting tradition. Huh? I didn't know that. Yeah. So that very similar to what you guys do in the deep South goes all the way up to Jersey. And I've even seen some evidence of, of, you know, punt boat and, and double ender mm-hmm. uh, rail hunting in Long Island back in the in the wow. early 1900s. I had no idea about Long Island. I could believe it though. I used to dig clams there and and 
tong oysters when I was in college. And yeah, you could see it's all developed now, but right. we have right. a barrier island. It's the Great South Bay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a stunning piece of water. Yeah, it would make perfect sense back in the day, but it's all it's all no habitat. So the guys I've been talking to in the center of the country, I don't know a single Western rail hunter, interestingly. Like once you get to the Rockies, it kind of disappears. Um, but the Midwest, especially the central Midwest, where, where you've done a lot of your research, Ariel, uh, you get them in there. It's a migration thing. It's a it's a bit yep. it's a bit like woodcock. Yeah, it, exactly. So I mean, the, the season here is is pretty long. I believe it's two months, and you know we're not we're not restricted by the tides. And so you know peak rail migration through most of Missouri is in late September, early October. And yeah, you could you could consistently go out many days and encounter really high densities of birds. Um, but it but seems yeah, like the hunting's much harder. Yeah, it's it's not um, not a light exercise. Because <laughs> yeah, if it's a bird a mile and it's not, you're not walking I, that, in the field. You're walking that, in the marsh. Right. I heard that same thing and I thought, my God, the number of birds that we have in a mile if you're in the right place is mind blowing compared to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure if you hit migration right on, it would probably be a lot better than that. But you know, there's a lot of variation from day to day. They seem to come and make fairly long stopovers, individual birds um, in this part of the country, but then they start to leave in early October when the cold fronts start rolling through. And so there may have been birds stacking up here for quite some time, but then they start to take off um, as those winds start blowing. Mm, I guess they spend their winters in Louisiana, I would imagine. Yeah, some of them um, probably continue farther south. We're not really sure what proportion stays in, on the northern Gulf and what proportion goes down into Mexico. Um, they have been found on oil platforms out in the Gulf of Mexico. So huh. we know that some of them are crossing, but there's certainly large numbers that, that stay in the U.S. Gulf states for the winter. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense because Tomalipas and, and Veracruz are, don't look a hell of a lot different from Texas. Sure, yeah. Hey everyone, I'd like to take some time to thank Filson, the original Alaska Outfitter, for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I am rarely out chasing upland birds without my Filson jacket and tin cloth chaps. You should know that Filson was founded in Seattle, Washington in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating the best in class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Right now is Filson's winter sale, and you can save at least 35% on unfailing goods, including classic bags, outerwear, boots, and more. How much is actually known about this group of birds? I mean, you know, you talk to people who are grouse hunters and pheasants and quail, and there's quite a lot of science behind those birds. And I get the sense that not so much with rails. Yeah, so there was quite a bit of work done back in the 60s and 70s. and then it kind of dropped off, and, and part of it was kind of technologically limited. So to do surveys for these birds during the breeding season, unlike, um, say, for waterfowl, where you can count them in an airplane, or songbirds, where you can go out and do point counts pretty easily, where you listen for them. Um, for these birds, you have to go out and to greatly increase your chance of detecting them, you broadcast their call to try and get them to call back to you. And um, that whole protocol was really designed in the, um, the late 90s, early 2000s um, by a researcher who's now at the University of, of Idaho um, named Courtney Conway. 
And so now that we have that protocol in place, um, monitoring for these birds has really expanded over the past decade. And so we have a lot better idea of what kind of habitats they're using, what their distribution is. We're starting to get a handle on population numbers. And there's a lot more graduate work being done trying to better understand their food habits and how to manage for them in different ways. So yeah, we're, we're it's really growing a lot, um, even since I started my, my graduate work, you know, eight years ago. Um, so it's really an exciting time to be working on them, but it's very different than like Bob White or Grouse, which have, we've had huge amounts of information on for decades. So. The thing about that call, you know, I love that too. I mean, when you're out there uh, and and w one of them calls, you know, and then the whole marsh just lights up, you know, and you're, you're, it's you're, amazing. Re you realize how many are around you that you can't even, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, they're all over the place. But you know, good luck trying to see them. Uh, yeah, and I would call, assume that they respond to a shotgun being shot. I mean, they certainly respond to car door slams and to ATVs backfiring. Um, yeah. Like any any kind of a sharp noise can really set them off. It's yeah, cool. that's right. And um, it, it's you know I, honestly, we, so when my son was young, we used to I used to walk him in the morning down the um, down this park right along the edge of his, a big stretch of marsh. And his his one of his it wasn't a word, but one of his first things he did was because fantastic. Always, I would always say those are the marsh hens, and I would do my imitation, and so I was quite proud as a dad. That's very cool. They're like turkeys like that. Turkeys will will, yes. will do the same thing. That's right. In fact, a crow call is my secret weapon with uh, with finding turkeys where I can't find turkeys. Right. Crow and an owl. Oh, that's right. I heard about the owl. And part of this whole thing is I'm gathering information from you guys as I talk to you because I am on a, a, a bizarre, quixotic quest to hunt, shoot, and eat every small game animal that has a season and a bag limit in North America. And I have, and the rails are the only major gap I have left in this whole thing of mine. There's maybe a dozen species, maybe a, a, a shade more if you include some of the duck species um, that I have that yet sounds, to chase. That sounds like an enviable, enviable assignment you've given yourself. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool because you, <laughs> nice work. You kind of get all because, you know, people have done the big game slam, but I'm like the anti big game hunter. Like, I mean, I'm sure I hunt big game, but I'm not right. I'm Jim right. Shockey. I am not right. Uh, right. Thank you. But, you know, I, if everybody's going to try and go for that North American big game slam, you know what? I'll zag. I'll, I'll go for you know, sign me up for the rails and the and the snipe and the and the Arctic hares and the marsh bunnies and. Marsh bunnies is another one I got to go after. Those those crazy big rabbits with the short ears. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that quest is going to take you to a lot of really cool habitats, too. Like the places that you'll get to explore will be really fantastic. Exactly. Like the Chachalacas. I just knocked them off the list this year. And the only place that they live in the United States is basically Brownsville. Huh, which really? A, which is a really cool area. It yeah, is. I spent a lot of time down there. It's great. There were rails there too, but again, like I need to work on ID so that I think that's probably one of the biggest obstacles for somebody who wants to get into this is you really have to know your birds. Yes. Yeah. I will say it's a little easier down here. We're, we are generally clapper rails. You know, you've got your smaller, you know, marsh bird. I don't know what to call them. Songbirdish, the black, the red winged blackbird. And then there's a, there's a, there's a smaller heron that I think it might be the green heron. Uh, 
that Probably, rise, yeah. that rise that gets up, you know, you could you could make that mistake, but you, if you take a beat more, you realize. Um, it sounds like you need to come to the Low Country, Hank. I'll I'll, I'll be there, man. And what? So you think October is the time to go? Uh, November. November. November Even yeah. better. November's yes. perfect because it's uh, it's kind of September and October are really big upland periods. Right. And I'm often wandering through the Great Plains or something like that in that period. And, and November is kind of terrible for ducks in, in California. So I think uh, I think I've got a, a November thing for them. So let's get let's talk about cooking them. So I think we've already determined that there could be some circumstances where you might want to pluck them if but we we're not sure yet because if they're eating crustaceans, chances are even if they are morbidly obese, they're going to be kind of stinky. Um uh that's my take. <laughs> we I I once tried to uh parboil them. You know, I, I've tried every which way and uh um my wife and I tried that, and uh, as soon as the little carriage house we were living in at the time started to smell like a old mullet, <laughs> that didn't go that didn't go over so well. And not even a young mullet, <laughs> an old musty mullet. Uh, yes, I'm uh, skinning for sure. Um, we've also drenched them in butter, you know, soaked them in buttermilk overnight. The, the things that I come back to are, are, are what you'd expect. And if I was a better cook, this repertoire would probably be more expanded. But, um, you know, your poppers, certainly. I've fried them, and they're good. Uh, I've heard people talk about, as you mentioned, a purlieu or a fricassee. Um, you know, they'll, the, the, but the joke is down here, pay someone to clean them and pay someone to eat them, which is fine with me because I, I hope people believe that. I, the less people hunting, the happier I am. To be, you know, sort of selfish about it. Have you ever eaten them, Oriole? Yeah, um, I've had them in in gumbo, which is really good, and I've also had them, yeah, in poppers or bacon wrapped. Um, that's been sores in Virginia's. I haven't had a chance to try clapper roll yet. So I can tell you my experience with the uh, the non-rail rails. So I have hunted, cooked, and eaten coots, moorhens, purple gallinules, and pukikos. If they're anything like the true rails, they are often fat, but yeah, the skin's not so good, and the breast meat's fine, but it's mm-hmm. small. Right. Yes. Yeah. Especially on a Sora or a Virginia, because you're talking about a much smaller bird. Yeah. I mean, and, are and the, and the down clapper big. rail, the clapper rail is so thin. It's amazing how how they can compress themselves. So, you know, they they are a thin bird. Yeah, depending on who you believe, that's where the phrase thin as a rail comes from. So. Oh, what's the alternative ah. theory? <laughs> the other theory is that it has to do with fences, which is just, you know, like a rail fence, which that's just a very boring explanation. Yeah. It's obviously the birds. So. I would think it's the birds. I'm in the bird camp. And honestly, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but now I love that phrase. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. They're, they're laterally compressed, so they're compressed in from the sides, which helps them to, like, wiggle through the vegetation and not be seen. So. Yes, right, right, yep. Are there any other kind of myths and lore and legends that involve with rails? Do you know anything, Ariel? Um, I've been told that the the name rail comes from a Norse word, rally, which means to rattle. Um, and the water rails in, in Europe make a rattle sound. But um, yeah, other than that, there's um, many different indigenous people around the world who have different stories and um relationships with different rail species but i can't remember any of them off the top of my head 
I, I I suspect that there was a rail hunting tradition in Europe prior to Europeans showing up here. I I would guess so, but I'm I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. Because if you think about it, prior to a shotgun, how would say the the indigenous groups in the United States chase rails if they even did? Um, they might have been able to build traps for them. Mm-hmm. Um, walk-in traps, even without the audio layers that we use today, can be quite effective if you set them up correctly. And you, they could have easily built them, um, you know, without the metal that we use now. Hmm. That's what, that's what, what have you ever heard of the old story about the, the native groups would, would, and I've, I've talked to some friends of mine who are, who are tribal members and they, they, Half of them say it's horseshit and half of them say it's true. Uh, that they would cut out like a jack-o'-lantern, right? And they'd stick it on their head. And they would get in the marsh. And so you got the eyes in the jack-o'-lantern, right? So you can see where you're going. But you, you basically, it's a freaking pumpkin head just over the, over the thing of water, right? And, and, but the ducks, and ducks being super curious, are like, hey, what the hell's that pumpkin head in the middle of the swamp? And and so the native guy who's looking through the eye holes of the pumpkin would go, would get closer and closer and grab by the feet and be like, I got you. <laughs> so I'm I've calling, heard this story calling, and I want to believe horse, it's true. Horse I, dumb. <laughs> I really want to believe it's true, but I, I have my doubts. That's your Halloween costume for next year. A rail hunter. There you go. <laughs> wow. I, I believe they could have caught them. I mean, I, I do. I think you could, you know, don't they, do the ones that are that during a low tide are, are, do they, do they travel paths in that Spartina or? Um, yeah, there, there definitely seems to be some repetition to the paths that they take. Um, right. There's some folks who have had good luck putting up trail cameras and actually uh-huh. getting some really interesting photos, even of black rails and yellow rails um, wow. in tidal wetlands. So, yeah. What's also amazing is the way they nest, um, you know, or at least the, the, the clapper rail, you know, I've only yeah. seen one nest, but it, it's sort of mind blowing how it's up on the, you know, the Spartina and above the tide line. Um, yeah, they're uh, really clever how they build it. Right. And they, they do the same thing in freshwater, even when they're not dealing with tidal forces, they build these little kind of like platforms, or at least the true rails do like the coots and the gallinules more like nest on mounds, like on muskrat huts and stuff like that. Right. But yeah, they're they're quite adept. The Virginia rails will often have like a an overhanging roof to them. I know some of the other rails do that sometimes, but Virginias do it pretty quick, pretty consistently. And they'll sometimes even have a little ramp built so they can like run up. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing though to think that they survive. You know, like a a storm, a super high tide, a, a, a rough day. You know, when the waves are coming in the marsh, it, it's just hard. You look at that nest and you're like, wow. How do, yeah. How, how does that you know, it's it, yeah, it's it is remarkable. Uh, it, it probably helps that they have what are called precocial chicks. So just you know, similar to ducks, their chicks can get up and and move around in the world pretty quickly after they hatch, unlike like, songbirds or something. So right. they're not in the nest as long. Got it. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure every single game bird. Well, maybe the doves. Maybe not the maybe not the doves and pigeons. But every other game bird that we hunt has precocious young. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm running through stuff in my head. That sounds about right. But yeah, you, you are correct. Doves and pigeons don't have precocial young. They're yeah. they're born with the ugly little featherless chicks that get cuter over time. Oh, yeah, they take a while to get cute. <laughs> they do. They really do. Whereas rail chicks pop out and they're just these adorable little cotton balls. 
Um, most most Rallyday chicks are very dark in color. Lots of them are black. Um, yes, coot, right. Coots, yeah. coots have the ones with like the um, like little like weird yellow and red little mohawks and stuff. Um, and there's actually a really neat paper that came out. I think it was late last year. That coots have these really big broods, and the adults, depending on the amount of resources available in a given year, decide after they hatch how many to raise. And they actually use the vibrancy of the color on each individual chick to pick who to who to feed. So oh it is a popularity contest. It's a little it's a little brutal, but you know. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You're ugly. You don't get food. That's <laughs> kind of what happens. Yeah. Oh. So. Wow. That's pretty is, crazy. Does it, is color any indication at all of, of uh, I don't know, strength, vitality? I don't know. Is there any correlation? Uh, I would have to go back and reread the paper. I don't yeah, recall yeah. if color right. was correlated with anything that they measured other than right. the ones the parents picked. What is a coot's uh, biggest enemy? Um, Actually, now, not a coot. Hank, what is a rail? Yeah, Hank seriously. 20 years ago. <laughs> seriously, what is a rails? Who who are rails' main enemies? So for for the smaller rails, Soras, Virginias, things of that nature, um, raptors are probably a big one. Um, I've seen them taken out by harriers and red-tailed hawks and great horned owls and barred owls at night. For the for the young, it's it's probably a wider suite of things. It could be snakes and otters and mink and raccoons. you know all, all of kind of the yeah raccoons, all the things that are out in the wetland because it does take a while for the young to be able to fly. Um, but for things like coots, I would think once they're fully flighted, there's probably not a lot of things that um that really are a threat to them. Oh, Damn. I can tell you exactly who hates coots. It's every raptor on the planet, especially bald eagles. Like I, I, you can watch them all day long, and it's super cool because the uh, there's often ducks in with the giant rassicoots, and these raptors will come after them and just and harass them and harass them and harass them. And sometimes the whole raft gets up and lands right in your decoys, and then the ducks go with them, and that was a poor choice on their part. Yeah. <laughs> down down here the um the clapper rails the you you. You know, lately there are a bunch of osprey cams that people have put up in mm-hmm. the spring, and it's shocking how many clapper rails get eaten by a uh, osprey that you, you know you see in the nest. It's like, wait, <laughs> uh, it's it's not surprising, but you know, it's the first time I'd seen it. Yeah, that's that news to me. I always thought they just ate fish. Yeah, no, there's uh, <laughs> there's plenty of clapper rail uh, bodies hanging around the osprey nest. During migration, a lot of the rails will end up in cities. Um, we're not entirely sure why they seem to end up in cities so frequently. But um, a lot of Sora and Virginia rail legs have been found in peregrine falcon nests in, like, Minneapolis wow. and Indianapolis and Chicago and stuff. Wow. So, yeah, they, they definitely get picked off when yeah. they're – especially probably when they're in a downtown area and have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> it seems like a poor habitat. <laughs> it is, but it happens pretty consistently. I mean, folks send me photos of rails in strange places, like hanging out on balconies on in New York City. There was a yellow rail that was found in Wrigley Field a couple months before they won the World Series. Like, See, know, it was an omen. That, that's what I say, but folks don't really pay into that too much. But yeah, they during migration, they certainly end up in strange spots. Ariel, I got to know, do you, do you have like, you know, rail art? in your home 
Oh, I definitely do. Um, yeah, yeah of, of a wide variety. Some of it is old prints, um, uh-huh. you know, like Audubon style or, you know, kind of some of the game bird style prints that were really popular back in the 60s. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, so prior to being in Illinois, I lived down in Mississippi um, in Ocean Springs and um, Walter Anderson is an artist. Oh, who yeah. Lives there. Right. And I have I have some of his prints of gallinules and bitterns. And yeah, oh, I, that's great. whenever I find real art, I snag it up because it's not overly common. Hank, do you think you could get a rail mounted? Is there any reason you couldn't a clapper rail? The only reason you couldn't is if it was hot. And the feathers would slip, but I I guarantee you could get one mounted if you had like a little cooler with you when yeah. you were there. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, my bought- graduate advisor had a purple gallinule and a king rail and a Sora mounted in his office. So I, I'm not I'm not huge on taxidermy, but I I, I just I I just think a a clapper rail mount I yeah I would love it just kind of walk picking you know poking along. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're beautiful, beautiful birds. I mean, a lot of folks ignore them because, you know, they're just boring and brown, but there's there's a lot going on there. Yeah. So one, before we go, I, I you've already said, you know, 410s, real light guns because they're not real big birds. Here, down here, we're, you know, because the salt will just destroy your gun, as you know, I, I've got an old, I bought a 20 gauge, an old Mossberg pump at a pawn shop for like 150 bucks. Um and it and it's perfect. It's it's everything you need. Um, some folks do use a 410, but I, I I'm not that good of a shot. That's a good tip on the salt water. Oh man, it's uh, it just good. I, I I wouldn't. I don't. I don't bring my duck guns out. No matter what you do, as you know. I mean, you've got a dog in the boat. You're rowing. I mean, the guns get salt. Uh, they get salted. Um, so it, it's a little easier to take with the with the Mossberg. I can't think of any other gear you'd need. No, you, um, that, no, that's it. I mean, you it's just a box of shells and you don't even, it's surprising to me, but you don't even need, um, steel shot, uh, unless you're on a wildlife management area. Otherwise, you know, you use lead. Um, mm. and, uh, that's it. A dog helps to, for the retrieves, but, uh, I would imagine either steel sevens or lead eights, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, that, that's for that, you know, that's it. The boat, as you said, the boat's the, the real barrier to entry. Um, but the, you know, a John boat with a, I do it out of a John boat with a nine horse, uh, old Evan Rude and two oars. So it's not like you need a fancy flats boat, you know? Mm. And I suppose inland, all you need are hip waders. Yeah. Yeah, it would be pretty simple. Because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in an inland marsh, if you're doing all that walking, if you're in past your ankles, you're not in you're not in rail country, are you? Or do yeah. they like deeper water? Um, you'll occasionally find them in deeper water, but generally speaking, yeah, they're going to be ankle deep or more shallow. But if you're, you know, if you're walking, you're going to be pushing birds, and you could certainly push them deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, you wouldn't spend a lot of time in, in deeper water. Well, I'm going to get after it this coming season, and it's uh, I'm going to I'm going to see if I can get all four in one year. Uh, we'll see. It's kind of a tall order, but you never know. And I will come, report back on my cooking experiments. Come see. Please it. do. Please do. Yeah. So before we go, is there anything that you guys think that the listeners out there need to know about rails that they that we've not already covered? 
I don't know. I just always tell people that if they spend time in wetlands, you've probably spent time with rails. And once you start listening for them, you're going to realize that they're everywhere. So just enjoy them. Yes. And, and that they live in like you exactly to back that up. They live in the most beautiful environments that it, it's just a, it's, it's just a pleasure to be out there with them. Definitely. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you guys say that, too, because uh, as a duck hunter, I really love just being in the marsh. You know, yes, I like duck hunting, but I just like seeing all the crazy things that happen to live in in marshland. And, and a lot of people who aren't familiar with these kinds of environments treat them as waste places and places where nothing happens and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, it's a huge, Amen. huge shame. Amen. Yeah, they're, I think anybody could enjoy a wetland regardless of how they spend their time there. They're just fascinating places. So Just wear good boots. Exactly. Dry feet definitely helps. Oh, my God, yes. And waiters that don't have a leak in the crotch. Yes. <laughs> yes, also a huge help. <laughs> so bad, especially in, like, December. You know, the, 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 the just a bear leak, it's like, drop, drop, drop. <laughs> no, because you know you're going to be out there for six hours and you're yeah. going to suck by hour four. Yeah, <laughs> and then your entire leg will be wet. Oh, no bueno. Well, all right, Ariel Fournier of the University of Illinois. Yep. Go Illini. I'm a badger, so I'm going to give you – I don't actually hate Illinois. Like, like I hate Michigan with the heat of a thousand suns, and, <laughs> and I hate Ohio State almost as much, mostly because Ohio State always – botches it for the big 10 when they get to the big game and like south carolina i don't know i guess you guys got clemson and uh, they yeah were good for, they were good I'm for a, a while i'm a georgia <laughs> i'm a georgia boy so i i went to university of vermont but i'm a i'm a bulldog fan so uh you know we we almost get there but we never quite uh we never quite finish georgia are the you're the badgers of the sec like, yeah good they'll get you close just enough right. to rip your heart yep. out. and then they'll break your heart <laughs> Well, take it easy, guys. I really appreciate it. We have managed to talk like for over an hour about a, a, the one of the more obscure game birds in North America. And I'm going to put all kinds of uh, links in the show notes. And you guys both have my email address. Send me, you know, stuff that you think would that just would be fun and interesting esoterica on on these crazy birds. And I will be happy to post it up. Shall do, yeah, shall do. yeah, definitely post the 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 call, the the clapper rail call is just the the coolest thing to hear. So, oh, I'm gonna do all of them. I'm gonna even do like the, the coots because there's like the sound, the serenade of coots when you're duck hunting is yes. like that's the sound of my winter. There you go. <laughs> all right, guys, take it easy. Thank you for being on the show, and I will definitely be heading to the Low Country in the in the fall. You can you can bank on that. Excellent. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I really hope you enjoyed geeking out over a bird. Chances are most of you have never even thought about hunting, let alone hunted. I hope this podcast has given you some inspiration to go out there into the marsh and get wet and chase these crazy little birds next season. Until then, you can follow me on social media. I am on Instagram all the time at HuntGatherCook. I am also on Facebook, where I have a private Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. You have to answer some questions to get into the private group, so just tell me that you heard about the group through the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Also, you can find thousands and thousands of recipes for every sort of wild game, fish, foraged, mushroom, you name it, on my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is the core of what I do. I am on that website every single day, making it better, 
providing more recipes for anything that you bring home from your outdoor adventures. Again, I'm Hank Shaw. This is the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I really appreciate you listening. Until next time, take it easy.